Welcome to Redcast, the podcast organized by the University of Brasilia Students Law Review. My name is Matheus de Pieri. And I am Pedro Gonebranco. We are here today to talk about fake news, freedom of speech and media to Professor Marta Mino, the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University. Professor Mino was dean of the Harvard Law School from 2009 to 2017 and is the author of the book Saving the News, Why the Constitution Calls for Government Action to Preserve Freedom of Speech. And Professor Mino was also editor of the Yale Law Journal when she was a law student. So it's especially an honor to have you here, Professor Marta Mino. Thank you so much for being with us today. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And Professor, I'll begin with a straightforward question. What do you think is the most serious crisis we are living nowadays. You know, the word crisis has a risk of being overused because there seem to be so many these days. Uh, certainly the global climate change uh, is an existential threat to every living being. Um, I am uh, a lawyer and I am someone who has committed to justice and democracy uh, as my career. So from where I sit, I do also see global challenges to the very viability of democracies. Um, and that is really the focus that led me to write the book. And intimately connected to the idea of the crisis of democracy, Professor, we have the crisis of the news. And that's a reality not only in the US, but also in Brazil, in other parts of Latin America and of the world. And so I'd like to ask you, how could you describe the crisis of the news? That's an idea that you bring in the book as well. And which recommendations would you give to save the news, to save the media? My focus has been uh, uh, largely the United States, but I do see very similar patterns in countries, including Brazil. And the dangers include um, the overtaking of the news journalism industry by social media, both in terms of the attention that people pay and in terms of the financial model of supporting the activity. Uh, and the unfortunate uh, consequence of this is that there is an easy spread of rumor and false information, uh, what some people call fake news. Uh, and there's less investment, considerably less investment uh, in, uh, in journalism, in investigation, in holding government and uh, private uh, powers accountable for their conduct. In the United States, there's been a dramatic drop off uh, in the numbers of people who make a living as journalists. Uh, and particular crisis is in local news. So cities and towns there are now many in the United States described as news deserts. There is no one who is, make, who is actually reporting on local news. Thank you very much for your amazing answer. Professor, for the next question, you stated previously that one of the problems about fake news and freedom of speech is that we are focusing on the rights of speakers and ignoring the rights of listeners. Therefore, considering these rights of listeners, what can be done about social media companies 
they usually exempt themselves from any responsibility? You know, this is such an important question. Uh, in many countries, uh, the social media companies are uh, either in law or in practice outside of not just moral responsibilities, but even legal responsibilities. In the United States, there is an actual explicit exemption of the media companies, the platform companies, from the liabilities that attach to conventional news media or journalism for defamation or consumer protection violations. They, they, they sought and obtained this exemption when the internet was new. The idea was brand new companies needed insulation in order to innovate. Well, they're no longer brand new and they're no longer small. They're among the largest, most successful companies in the world. So what can be done? I do think that they can be subject to regulation. Uh, and I think that the regulations can include duties like consumer protection. United States, one small step would be to eliminate the insulation from liabilities that attach to other companies. Um, but beyond that, I also think there can be pressure from consumers, from the users who demand more. And I think that countries other than the United States that have a better protection for privacy uh, can actually uh, imagine litigation and regulation to protect the privacy of individuals uh, because it is the social media companies that take uh, users' data and uh, deploy it in ways that are not disclosed and that jeopardize the privacy of the individuals. And Professor, still on this topic, here in Brazil, we say that the uh, fundamental rights have an horizontal effect, meaning they are binding for every single party, but not only for governmental actors, but also for private uh, individuals. And in the US, we have a different situation. And uh, the, with respect to individual rights provisions, the constitution binds only in governmental actors. My question to you is, can we say that media plays such an important role in our society that it must be treated as a governmental actor and so that the fundamental rights must be obeyed by them as well, or the current situation is enough to protect everyone. This is so interesting, and it is an area where I think there's a lot of work to be done, and it's something that I think law students in particular should be spending time on. Uh, yes, uh, Brazil, Ireland, many countries, South Africa, have what we in the United States would call lateral application of, uh, of the law. That is, it applies not just to the government, but to private parties. Uh, so the same way that the government might be liable for restricting speech or for due process violations, a private company can be. Uh, I think that it's challenging for the social media companies to be held responsible the same way the government would be um, it, I'll, just to put it in the view that they express, they are simply providing a platform. They are not picking uh, what information is shared. Uh, they are not selecting, they are not communicating. I have a response to them, which is actually they are. They are using algorithms 
that give a priority to what uh, users see. And in fact, you will see something that different than what I will see because the algorithms are keyed and tied to our own personal data. Uh, it's maybe one step removed, but it's nonetheless extremely uh, a choice and a choice that is uh, tweaked and modified every day with the large goal of making more money. Um, again, I think there can be regulation. I, I think it'd be more successful and more coherent to have uh, government uh, administrative agencies think hard about what the scope of the regulation should be rather than have individuals bring multiple lawsuits that could lead to conflicting results. One small benefit of the United States approach that I would not want to lose is that uh, while we in the United States have a very vigorous protection of freedom of speech when it's the government that is selecting, uh, we, do, we allow private parties, private actors to speak and to edit uh, private newspapers, private television, and the government does not get close. If the government does get involved in picking the content, I think that that is a real jeopardy to personal freedom and even to democracy. Now, I know that your head of state uh, has been blocking people, for example, from his Facebook account. Um, that is an issue in the United States as well, uh, and it's treated as private conduct. I think that's a mistake even under US law. I think that when a head of state uh, or other important government official is using Facebook or another social uh, media company to communicate policies, to communicate ideas, to rally support. They're not speaking as private persons and, uh, and they ought not to be able to block uh, individuals from seeing what they're saying. Great point, Professor. Thank you. And nowadays, one of the words we hear the most is fake news and this dissemination of fake news is compromising some important elements of democracy. And in the title of your book, you mentioned that uh, you propose to answer the question, why the Constitution calls for government action to preserve freedom of speech. So about government action, um, what can be done about it and who should act? to uh, stop this dissemination of fake news. Fake news is a phrase that has been around for some time, but our former president in particular popularized it. And it's hard to know exactly what it means as a result because he used the phrase to refer to any, any comment that he disagreed with. And one of the most dangerous aspects of this current moment is the exploding doubt and skepticism about the reliability of any information that a government official or other individuals, including ordinary people, just don't like. Uh, to say that um, climate change is caused by human conduct. There are people who say that's fake news, even though there are no peer-reviewed studies that question it among the scientists. Uh, to say that the uh, coronavirus uh, is actually spreading uh, through human conduct. Some people say it's fake news. It's not fake news. You know, in the 16th century, 
there was an explosion of ideas that's now known as the Enlightenment. In Western Europe, it actually spread around the world. And the key elements of the Enlightenment were the scientific method, uh, the search for reason uh, over emotion, uh, and uh, the rise of tolerance, uh, respect for multiple points of view and multiple religions, and yes, democracy. Every one of those elements is now in jeopardy. And I actually lay the blame in no small measure on this call uh, of false news offered whenever anybody hears something they don't like. That distrust is then corrosive. It is undermining the possibility of actually having a shared reality and actually having a shared factual basis upon which to make tough decisions that we all are facing in this very, very challenging time. What can be done is a harder question. What can be done, uh, honestly, I think that uh, one of the important next steps is to strengthen uh, reliable sources of news uh, in many parts of the world that is through public media, that is financed through taxes, but then the selection of what is on has to be insulated from government. Otherwise, there could be terrible manipulation and control by unscrupulous government officials. Um, but many countries have developed techniques for doing that. The BBC in England is a good example. I do think public broadcasting in the United States, public broadcasting in Japan, each have these features that they are funded by the government, but they are organized by independent journalists. I also think that media education is very important so that from a young age, uh, individuals learn how to ask, well, where did this information come from? How can I confirm it? Why is it trustworthy? Um, and so that people actually learn to discern uh, what is reliable and what is not. But the a uh, bigger problem, honestly, is the social media companies. And here um, I have small suggestions. There's no silver bullet. There's no single answer. But one example of a small suggestion would be to identify areas of possible regulation around the architecture of the social media sites. Uh, to say that individuals have a right to speak or a right to receive information doesn't mean that individuals have a right to speak to the whole world with, uh, with ease. And so there could be regulation of the architecture so that in order to send messages or to have your post viewed by more than a handful of people, there could be some friction introduced, some further steps that the individual has to undertake, even some validation um, that's an example of a small uh, step that might help. Thank you very much for your amazing answer. Professor, our next question is related to Brazil and is also related to what you've called a need for regulation and a need for government action to save the news. Developing countries, especially those that had any kind of dictatorship in the last century, are very concerned that government intervention on news could lead to censorship. Therefore, what can we do to assure that this governmental action will not undermine freedom of speech on the long run? 
crucial question, and it's a question actually all over the world, where there have been dictatorships, but also where there could be dictatorships. Um, I do want to revive the Enlightenment era belief in pluralism. I think strengthening the entire media ecosystem is one, uh, one way to move. So there isn't uh, just a domination by one or a few uh, sources of news and information. I do think the government should be restrained from controlling any of the content on news. Of course, government actors can have their own, uh, their own speeches that they give, their own Facebook accounts, but they should not be allowed to control what others say. I, I also think that civil society um, and strengthening civil society is one of the best guards uh, against the recurrence of a dictatorship or its, its rise. And by civil society, I mean universities, I mean private media, I mean nonprofit advocacy organizations. And one idea that I've seen that seems very intriguing to me is a regulation on the social media companies that requires them to share the technical level inside of their site that uh, allows for the sorting and editing, the, the, uh, the interface that gets then to each of us so that there could develop competition among new entities that offer their services either for free or for money that say, here's how we will edit. Here's how we will organize what comes into your newsfeed. Here's how we will give priority in an algorithm and allow transparency, require transparency about the priorities that are being used. Is it only to make money and therefore what's most outrageous uh, escalates to the top or uh, is there an interest uh, that a particular provider has to give the most current information about the pandemic that is from uh, scientific sources that have university ties? Uh, I think if there were more choices and more transparency about the choices about how what we receive is done, not centralized by a government, but by multiple actors, that would be helpful. Professor, that's amazing. Thank you. And you're already very well known here in Brazil. Uh, and, and I am sure that after this conversation, you will inspire even more young scholars, young lawyers and young law students. So my last question to you is if you could give any advice to a student or to a young academic who is just in the beginning of his or her professional journey, what would you say? Uh, I would say I envy you. You are uh, starting an exciting career. Um, uh, make choices that allow you to look at yourself in the mirror. Uh, you have the enormous privilege of being able to use your mind and your talents. Um, and not uh, just your energy. Um, and so you have an obligation that comes with that. Find who you want to be accountable to. Each of us needs to identify, if you will, our own private board of directors. Uh, who is that for you? Is it your family? Is it some friends that you've made? 
And when you think about, oh, but if I do the following, people won't like it. Think about which people, whose views you really care about. Uh, and, uh, and, and actually, as far as I know, we each only have one life. And so do make choices that uh, take, take enough risk that you can uh, look back on the life and say, I didn't miss out. Uh, I, I didn't miss what was possible. Professor Martha Minius, thank you so much for your time and for this illuminating talk. It was a great pleasure being here with you today and it was an honor uh, being able to discuss with you such important topics. Well, Professor, this last quote of yours was really touching for me. Thank you. I'm delighted to uh, be with you and I send you best wishes and look forward to seeing all that you would do. Uh, thank you, really, very much. I have no words to thank you enough. And thank you also to you, uh, my dear listener. And if you enjoyed this podcast or if you want to send us a feedback, you can follow us and contact us on our pages on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, searching for Revista dos Estudantes de Direito da Universidade de Brasília. Thank you very much. See you later.